Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of Herbert Hoover, Governor Thomas E. Joy, Senator Robert Taft, Sugar Ray Robinson, the Aga Khan, Gary Cooper, Congressman Joe Martin, Senator Harry Byrd, Senator Joseph McCarthy, and more than 40 other people in the news in the 10th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. We cannot protect ourselves by withdrawing from the rest of the world, and if we did, we would not survive. Operation Withdrawal is Operation Suicide. Canasta, cocktails, and cynicism have become the false trademarks of too many people of our generation. Wearing white and black trunks, weighing 155 and a half pounds, the world's welterweight boxing champion, Sugar Ray Robinson. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Now, here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. That is the seldom heard voice of Joseph Stalin. Today, for the first time in more than two years, he made a major pronouncement on foreign policy. He said in an interview published in Pravda that the U.N. forces are going to be defeated in Korea unless we accept China's demands. Withdraw all U.N. troops. Remove our naval screen from Formosa. Admit communist China to the U.N. and agree to a big power conference in China. Stalin said the U.N. is being turned into an instrument for war. U.N. troops aren't fighting well in Korea because they don't believe in the righteousness of their cause. The United States, our partners in the North Atlantic Pact, plus the Latin American nations are plotting aggressive war. But he doesn't believe war is inevitable at this time. He suggests that the people should get rid of their leaders who are leading them to war, which is what we have been telling the Russians they should do. It was a tough, uncompromising talk. We shall have to wait to see if it's followed by action. On Monday of this week, a tired, quiet president stood in the marble temple on the Potomac River and as a U.S. Marine band played, bared his head to the great president whose day is February 12th. It was a week for the Republicans to talk of President Lincoln and for the Democrats to wait to honor their giants, Jefferson and Jackson, in April. But one had the feeling that the Republicans were thinking more of 1952 than 1861. If the halls of Congress were not so crowded this week, the banquet halls around the country most definitely were. 
My good friends of Brooklyn, I'm particularly privileged to join in this tribute to a great and noble spirit of Abraham Lincoln. As we join tonight to honor the memory of Abraham Lincoln, I should like to speak to you in terms of simple eulogy. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Republicans, it is a great pleasure, certainly, to speak to this great Republican Lincoln Day meeting in the state which is the home of Abraham Lincoln. We're gathered here in downtown Chicago, a great and spirited and militant assembly, upon this occasion when we come with homage and reverence for the patron saint of the Republican Party and one of the great creatures of all mankind, Abraham Lincoln. This was also an anniversary for Senator McCarthy of Wisconsin. It was at a Lincoln Day ceremony in 1950 at Wheeling, West Virginia, that the Wisconsin Republican lashed out at the State Department and accused it of harboring communists. This week, Democrat Harley Kilgore observed Lincoln Day by saying the charges had been made in his home territory, West Virginia, and he wanted to know if the Wisconsin senator had been able to prove his charges. This is not only the anniversary of Lincoln's birthday, but also the anniversary of the bringing of the charges against the State Department by Senator McCarthy from Wisconsin. Whether the junior senator from Wisconsin accused 205 or 57 State Department's employees of being communists, it is important that he said they were employees of the State Department at the time the charges were made, and that that was known to the Secretary of State. Mr. President, one year has passed. The time has come for the junior senator from Wisconsin to name the alleged communists in the State Department. Who are they? We asked Senator McCarthy what he would like to say on the subject. We traced him to Jackson, Michigan, where the Wisconsin senator was making one of his four Lincoln Day speeches. Senator McCarthy said this. Uh, as to the progress made in the specific cases named, a uh, number of them have resigned, as you know. Others uh, have had the bright light shed upon their activities to the extent that they haven't been able to damage this nation as much as they otherwise could. Perhaps the most important progress that has been made in this fight against communists, is that we are getting some semblance of cooperation between both Republicans and Democrats to the end that we may hope for combined effort on the part of both Democrats and Republicans to get rid of this crimson motley crowd that has been selling our nation out all over the world to international communism. The Republican whose Lincoln Day speech might have done most to revive the bipartisan foreign policy and to honor Mr. Lincoln was still too ill to leave Grand Rapids. The nation missed the voice of Senator Arthur Vandenberg. But this week, as the nation heard the voices of the Republican Party's first team, the great debate simmered down. It almost seemed to be ending. Certainly the issues left to argue about were largely concentrated within the Republican Party. Almost everyone agreed that we must have a large air force, a large navy. Almost everyone agreed that we must send some troops to Europe. But here there were differences. How many? What proportion of the new Eisenhower ground forces should be American? What proportion European? Could the president act on his own or must Congress first approve? There were still those who argued against sending even a limited number of troops to Europe. Senator Wary called such people compromisers. That included Senator Taft, who approved sending some troops to Europe under certain circumstances. Certainly the president should not set up an international army or send American troops without the approval of Congress nor should he be able to do it without a definite binding agreement from the foreign nations as to the number of troops which they will put up. Surely, if we are going to participate at all in an international army, we want to be sure 
but the other nations will provide most of the soldiers. And even former President Hoover, whose Gibraltar speech eight weeks ago started the great debate, said that he was not speaking of withdrawal, that he was no retreatist. I have proposed no retreat, no withdrawal. I have proposed no repudiation of treaties. Rather, I have proposed that the pledges to the Congress and the American people be kept. I have proposed that we stop, look, and listen before we start on a road of land war that risks the loss of all civilization. Governor Dewey was also one of those who hit the Lincoln Day Trail. In continuing to disagree with Mr. Hoover, he wanted to make it clear his appraisal of President Truman and the Democratic administration had not changed since 1948. I did my best to throw it out a couple of years ago. And I'm sure somebody else will throw it out next year. But Governor Dewey, who has already come out for Eisenhower in 1952, says that Mr. Hoover's policies will not win wars or elections. What would we do if we follow the course that is urged upon us by some? An island of freedom in a communist world, outnumbered 14 to 1, with oceans that would no longer be our protecting moat, but a broad highway to our front door. We cannot protect ourselves by withdrawing from the rest of the world, and if we did, we would not survive. Operation Withdrawal is Operation Suicide. But Governor Dewey and those who think along his lines have not convinced everybody. On Wednesday, more than half the Republican members of the House, 118 of them, made it known that they lean toward the Hoover view. They want us to abandon the administration's foreign policy, concentrate on defending this hemisphere, Hold up aid to Western Europe until we have proof that the Europeans will carry their part of the common burden. Generally, throughout the debate, the Democrats have limited themselves to soft words, to explaining the administration's views, and to watching the infighting among the Republicans. Inevitably, the big domestic prize of 1952 cropped up in the speeches. A Democrat charged that Senator Taft was pushing for the presidency. A Republican said the Democrats were trying to win General Eisenhower as their 1952 candidate. This picking on Ike, and there'd been more of it, brought Senate Majority Leader McFarland to the rostrum in Raleigh, North Carolina. Are we going to follow Eisenhower or the men who argue with each other about mathematical formulae on troops? Who knows the military situation and the facts in Europe better? The great soldier who served as supreme commander in Europe are the timid men suddenly become military strategists. So difficult was it for anyone to draw the line between where the politics of defending Europe ended and the strategy began that a great strategist, who has never been a member of either political party, Secretary of Defense George C. Marshall, was willing to reveal his military plans in order to clear the air. To a soldier, secrecy regarding disposition of his troops is almost a religion. But General Marshall on Thursday went before two Senate committees to reveal the number of troops to be sent to Europe. I take this step reluctantly because of the security considerations involved. But I have reached the conclusion that there is a greater peril to our security through weakening the morale of our allies by a debate based upon uncertainties than there can possibly be to the public disclosure of our planned strength figures. To be specific, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have recommended to me, and I have so recommended to the President, and the President has approved, a policy with respect to our forces in Europe, which looks to the maintenance by us in Europe 
of approximately six divisions of ground forces. We already have there, on occupation duty, about two divisions of ground forces. Our plans, based on the recommendation of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, therefore contemplate sending four additional divisions to Europe. Another problem for the military establishment and Congress was, should women be drafted? We wondered how the women of America and their families felt about this. And we asked our CBS reporters in Kansas City, Atlanta, and Dallas to take their microphones out on the streets and ask, should women be drafted? These are some of the answers we recorded. I feel very strongly about this. Uh, I don't feel that women should be drafted into the Army, into defense work, certainly. We're not too brave if you put us behind a gun, but put us behind a machine, I'm sure we'll do all we can. I don't see anything that they, why they shouldn't. They want social equality and everything. Women, like men, are a part of manpower, and certainly women should be drafted if it's necessary and if it will aid the overall war effort. In answer to your question, I definitely think they shouldn't. I'm pretty sure that if fellas were given a more careful checkup when they go down for the physical and less rejections were handed out, we'd have an ample supply of men for the armed forces. I'd uh, derive more consolation in knowing my friends have been taken rather than my sister or girlfriend. Uh, I don't believe that women should be drafted. I think they should stay home, keep up the men's morale, and keep the home fires burning. Well, I certainly do think that women should be drafted if the situation gets bad enough. And if it comes to a war of survival, the question can have only one answer, that the women will serve wherever they can, just like the men. Well, I don't know about that, sir. No, sir, I don't think so. I think when a man comes home, he's tired at night. He wants something to eat. The debate on the drafting of women for industry would go on and possibly be a reality. But as for women in the armed services, draft director Hershey said, at the moment, not a chance. The supply was already far in excess of the demand. In droves that far exceed their quotas, the ladies were enlisting for service in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines. Colonel Babcock, through you, may I say to your command at Camp Pickett, this USO is yours. Use it often. It is the free will gift of a democratic American people. The USO joined up again, too. Two nights ago at Camp Pickett, Virginia, the first USO center of the present emergency was activated and officially opened for the men and women of crowded Camp Pickett. The music and the coffee and the donuts were the same. A long way from the USO at Camp Pickett, Virginia, there were other ceremonies and other speeches. General Matt Ridgway, whose army claimed 10,000 Chinese casualties in one day, climbed into his helicopter and paid a visit to the most powerful portable battery any general ever had. The USS Missouri, unopposed in the waters off the Korean Peninsula, has been moving up and down the coast, bombarding the enemy at Ridgway's will. The general flew out to the Big Mo to say his thanks. Now, the final results so far are the results of the combined efforts of the Army, Navy, and Air. The cooperation of our air and sea power with our ground troops was an important factor this week in stopping a determined communist attack. For five days, the enemy pushed down the Central Front. For five days, the reports from the battlefield said in summary, they're coming at us like fleas, we're killing them like fleas, and we're holding. The Americans, with the British and French and Dutch, were holding and carrying out orders from above to kill communists. 
In Korea this week, and at Lake Success and in London and in Washington, they were talking about the 38th parallel. The communists have crossed it twice. We have crossed it once and are now inching toward it again. Senator Nolan of California, speaking in the Senate, said we have to cross the parallel. Mr. President, if His Majesty's government is going to propose that the United Nations forces not go north of the 38th parallel, it is time that information was very clearly outlined in specific detail. What in effect this will mean, Mr. President, is that the communists in North Korea will be assured that they will have the opportunity to build up a Korean government north of the 38th parallel, and it will make military operations very difficult if this limitation is placed upon General MacArthur and General Ridgway. A few miles away from the 38th parallel, Sergeant Horace E. Cress of Pound, Virginia, says he thinks we do not have the power to go very far past the parallel. In my opinion of the Chinese, that we hit, they're kind of fighting kind of a delay in action. And I believe along the parallel, we will hit their mainline resistance. And I think we'll make the parallel. I don't believe we can get much farther. General MacArthur said the question of crossing the parallel was at this moment an academic one, that it depended on international decisions that have not yet been made. The State Department says it's discussing this question with other nations. But the president says General MacArthur has authority to cross the 38th parallel when he wants to. But Prime Minister Attlee insists on consultations. Winston Churchill told Britain's House of Commons yesterday that the Labour government had not been able to make an atomic bomb in the five and a half years since the war ended. But again, the Labourites defeated a no-confidence proposal by 21 votes. The fourth time in two weeks, the Commons has turned back a Churchill attack. In Washington, the president renominated all five members of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation thus defying senators who have attacked the commissioners. And the labor members of the Wage Stabilization Board resigned after the public and industry members voted to restrict wage raises to 10% up to next July. Governor Dewey said that if the enrollment of civil defense wardens continues to lag, they may have to be drafted. Russia's Malik was over his heart attack and was back at the U.N. in time to watch Russia's attempt to brand the U.S. as an aggressor soundly defeated. The Russians also abandoned their plan to boycott Craig Vilee as Secretary General. The King of Egypt announced his engagement to a 17-year-old commoner, Nariman Sadak, who once had been engaged to one of Egypt's United Nations officials. And in the pink marble palace in Tehran, the Shah of Iran married Soraya Esfandiare, the 19-year-old daughter of a one-time rebel chief. You hear now some of the music and a description of the wedding by the Aga Khan of India, who rushed to our microphone in the palace from the Shah's study where the wedding vows were pronounced. And here he serves as our honorary correspondent. It was a very impressive and beautiful ceremony indeed. It was carried out in the tradition of the old empire and sultanate of Iran of the time of the Safaviyya. Everything was done in the highest tradition of Shia Islamic countries. And it was most glamorous, and the bride was a true empress, worthy of the Patriot Emperor. The president sent a Steuben crystal bowl, similar to that sent to Elizabeth and Philip. And Stalin was reported to have sent a $150,000 mink coat. But this turned out to be just two flower pots made of green stone and decorated with jewels. 
You probably were not among the 14,000 who poured into Chicago's oval-shaped stadium on Wednesday night. But even if you were there, even at ringside, you could not have heard or seen this story we're about to tell. In some respects, it's the story of a fight. But much more so, it's the story of intimate contrasts, which can be captured only when a portable recorder is within whispering distance of the man who is doing the talking. This is not so much the story of body blows and fancy footwork. Rather, it's the oral calendar of 14 hours a man must live through in search of a prize. In this instance, the middleweight championship of the world. 60 million people heard or saw that fight. Millions more have read about it. But for the first time on radio, you're going to share with welterweight champion Sugar Ray Robinson the mixed emotions a fighter experiences as he waits for those 14 hours to go by. Wednesday morning at 7 a.m., a lakefront hotel in Chicago. 14 hours to go. Mr. Robinson, it's time to get up, sir. 7 o'clock. Today's a big day, right? 8 a.m., 13 hours to go. Mrs. Robinson joins her husband for breakfast. Already the tension begins to mount. But as often happens, the man who carries the burden is calmer than those who share it with him. How'd you sleep last night? Fine. See, I slept very good. I didn't hear anything until this morning when my brother-in-law started snoring. Gee whiz. (laughs) Well, I didn't sleep too well. I guess I'm a little bit tight. I guess I'm just too anxious to get it over. Is this my poached egg? Yes, that's yours. And, uh, honey, I don't know why you always tighten up just before a fight. Doggone it, I think you were fighting. (laughs) 9 a.m., 12 hours to go. The Robinson party leaves for the official weighing in. This will give you some idea of the confusion and excitement, most of it evidenced by the news photographers. The scale is perfectly balanced. It's been checked. One, sixty on the head. If the photographers will get organized, fifty-five and a half. Robinson. Official weighing in is over now. What do you want? Ray, Ray, come on. The photographer's waiting. Come on, sugar. We want to get a news picture. Shake hands with him. Let's do something. Get up on the scale, will you, Jake, please? A little banter between the two And this was the little banter between Jake LaMotta, a four-to-one underdog, tense and annoyed, and Robinson, cool and calm. I know we're going to be in there tonight and give the people the best we have. We always have gave a good fight. We've never had any complaints. Boy, you got to be a talker all at once, huh? Does <laughs> so you get paid to fight, not talk. Twelve noon, nine hours to go. Robinson is back at the hotel. Sports writers remember how on the day of a big fight... Dempsey would snarl at people and stay in his room. How Joe Lewis would do nothing but sleep. Robinson is walking through the lobby. Our recorder and reporter Ed Scott caught this. (laughs) Well, there's nothing to be downhearted about. I mean, other people think you go to a fight and you should be tense and... But, uh... I don't know. You're anxious for the fight to get started, but uh, there's nothing to be melancholy or nothing about. you got to fight anyway. 1 p.m., eight hours to go. For many of us, steak is a luxury. But for Robinson, sick of his red meat diet, this is just one more meal, the last before the fight. 2 p.m., seven hours to go. An afternoon to while away. Fighters are not generally students of verse, but almost all of them know this couplet. Hail the conquering hero comes surrounded by a bunch of bums. But Robinson's handlers are the exception to the rule. Most of them are experienced old hands, and there are many of them. I am Detective Johnny Jenkins from New York City, doing my very best trying to protect him. 
in all manners. I am Roger Simon, Ray Robinson's barber. My duties are to keep Ray Robinson's hair in trim. I am Harry Wiley, associated trainer of Ray Robinson. My job is to see that Robinson gets in condition. I'm Fred P.B. Beale. I'm one of Ray Robinson's trainers. My job is to see that he stays in fit condition, both mentally and physically. I am Joe Roach, Ray Robinson Golf Pro. My name is George Gainford. I'm manager of Sugar Ray Robinson, the present world welterweight champion. My job is to uh, book him all of his fights, to see that he's well conditioned, so that he may give his best to the pain public. June Clark is my name, secretary with Ray Robinson, and I take care of the equipment, of course, that's the mail. The kind of social coordinator. My name is George Jones. I'm the fellow who takes care of his body, conditions his body, looks at his legs, watch him how he goes, high boxes in and out, how he comes in and out on his legs. My name is Honey Brewer. I'm Ray Robinson's brother-in-law, taking care of his personal business. I am Dr. Vincent A. Nardiello. Ray Robinson has been a patient of mine since he started boxing. 3 p.m., six hours to go. Robinson walks along Michigan Boulevard, breathing in the cold, crisp air. And then he remembers today is no ordinary day, it's Valentine's Day. So into one of the shops he goes. This is very new, and it takes a large monogram. And it has the musical score of I Love You Truly. Her initials are put on the top, and then your name is inscribed just above the I love you truly. What does that go on the bracelet? That goes on a bracelet. And what's the price of this? This is 14 karat gold. The bracelet is $120, tax included. Hey, wait a minute. This is Valentine's Day, not our anniversary. (laughs) 4 p.m., five hours to go. Robinson tries to take a nap, but now for the first time, he's beginning to grow restless. Finally, 8 o'clock, one hour to go. And Robinson leaves the hotel. Smartly dressed in a blue business suit, he enters a waiting limousine. At 8 o'clock, like other businessmen, he's off for work. Except it's 8 o'clock at night, and he leaves without briefcase or appointment book. Now it's 8.45. 15 minutes to go. You're in Robinson's dressing room. Who is it? Boxing Commission Inspector George. Morning. Just got a couple of minutes to go now, you know. Okay, I'll be right in a moment. But the dressing room is disappointingly unlike the Hollywood version. And in the loneliness of the drab sub-cellar of Chicago Stadium, George Gainford, Robinson's manager, clasps his bandaged hands. All right, Ray, let's go now. We got a job to do. It's time to do it. Come on, let's go. A gray-blue spotlight picks out Robinson as he slowly walks to the ring, protected by police and his handlers. Six weeks of preparation, training, diet, and road work are over. The strategy has been set. If mistakes were made, it's too late now. For the World Middleweight Boxing Championship. Wearing white and black trunks. 14,000 pairs of eyes are on Robinson. But as he dances in his corner, he is searching the crowd for his wife, Edna. She's sitting on the other side of the ring. 60 million people at home wait for the fight to begin. Shake hands and come out fighting. Let's go. Now we're ready for the action. During much fight. of the first six rounds, Lamata did something he had been unable to do in his five other bouts with Robinson. He stayed in close, matched Robinson jab for jab. The crowd sensed an upset, and Lamata's rooters had something to yell about. A 
the end of the sixth round, the crowd was in an uproar. But in this very intimate moment, we recorded in Robinson's Corner. Ray could hear only one voice, the voice of his manager. Come on, cut the slugging out. You're slugging, you know slugger. Why don't you box? You can hit him in the body. You're trying to finish for the head. Hit him in the body. You can get him in the body. You're not boxing enough. You're a better boxer. Well, let's go, let's go. Let's do a little better than you've done before. Round seven, and Robinson altered his style. Put distance between himself and LaMotta. Was able to hold him off. Jolt him back with crisp, long, left-handed blows. The battle turned in Robinson's favor. The best fighting machine of this generation was working again. A right hand for the midsection. A right uppercut with Sugar Ray. A left hook. And LaMotta cannot get his hands up. Come on, Junior. Come on, Junior. Knock him out. In the crowd, our recorders caught Ray's two sisters. And 900 miles away in New York, another of our recorders caught Robinson's mother, Leela, as she listened to the fight, lived and suffered through every punch. Keep your eyes on him, baby. That's all you got to do. Left hand, left jab him. That's it, Robinson. Come on, baby. Mama praying for you. Hit him right in the... anywhere. Robinson tags him with a straight right hand on the forehead, and Lamata seems loath to come away from the ropes. But he does come out, and Robinson hits him with a powerful right hand. And left up the cut, a right cross, and Lamata holds on, and they're going to stop it. Ray Robinson is the new champion of the world. A new champion who had lost only one professional fight out of 124, and that to the man he knocked out tonight. To the radio and television audience, some expected and unexpected words from the winner. I'm very glad to win. I'd like to say hello to my good friend down in uh, Miami, WW. Everything was okay. I'm not hurt. And uh, I'm sorry that I could not get a chance to turn over the check for $25,000 to the, uh, to the, to the uh, Runyon... The fight is over, and Robinson has attended to another piece of important business. It was not an easy fight, and back in the packed dressing room, those who wanted to interview him struggled to get near enough to hear him. Sitting on a bare rubbing table pushed against the concrete wall, the new middleweight champion, who's seen his hopes, works, and ambitions come true, talks to sports writer Lester Bromberg... Now, Ray, you, uh, now you got the title. Uh, how are you going to celebrate the, your capture of the middleweight title? Tonight, you mean? Yeah, how are you going to celebrate it? Home in that bed. <laughs> Just celebrate. Home, take a hot bath and lay in the bed, that's all. This has really been a tough, hard grind. Long time to get this chance at the middleweight championship. Long time to get one at the welterweight championship. But in view of everything, I'm very happy, and I'm a proud champion. If that's what you people call me, I am a proud fighter. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for air based on the week's news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 10 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who made the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. Before we continue, permit us just to note on last week's Hear It Now program. As you may recall, we spent considerable time last week telling the story of blood. And at the end of the program... 
asked our listeners to call their local Red Cross chapters and offer a pint of their blood. We thought you might be interested in knowing that the Red Cross estimates that when the final count is in, more than 400,000 of us will have donated a pint of the one ingredient that American industry cannot manufacture, whole blood. On behalf of the Red Cross, and if we may presume to say this, in behalf of the men in Korea who need your blood, we extend our compliments and our thanks to you. This week, a sound familiar to the streets of New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, and most other cities was heard again. But there was talk from Salvation Army officials that the competition of automobiles and screeching traffic might chase the traditional Salvation Army band off the streets near Times Square. An officer of the Army tells us his troubles. The Salvation Army open-air meeting at Times Square is going on tonight as it does every in the year. Last year, over 2,100 open-air meetings were conducted in the greater New York area. Over 200 of these right here in Times Square. Taxi cabs and buses and uh, automobiles that are not allowed to park anywhere continue to come closer and closer to us. But our lassies and Salvation Army officers uh, hold their own against all odds. And now we're going to sing a wonderful old-time song. You all know it. Rock of Ages, Cough for Me. The Salvation Army, now conducting its annual campaign through its street concerts and struggling for survival, should have the good wishes of the American people, who have a place in their hearts for both street concerts and campaigns. In Washington this week, as is the case just about every year at this time, a couple of congressmen, they change from year to year, got around to that perennial subject. Should there be daylight saving time in the nation's capital? The debate is not always between Republicans and Democrats, but between big city representatives and farm area ones. This year, the honor of the city dwellers was borne by Congressman Arthur Klein from New York. And from the Minnesota dairy country, there was Representative John O'Hara to represent those who oppose daylight saving time in Washington. From time to time, we have paired off the Trumans and the Tafts in debate, paragraph by paragraph. Now, here are Klein of New York and O'Hara of Minnesota on daylight saving. This year, I am taking no chances. I am introducing what I believe to be a rational, economical, and efficient bill to establish daylight saving time each year for the District of Columbia. We are now approaching the season for someone from the fields of Manhattan to decry the rural madness of those who are opposed to daylight saving time. Much has been made of the discomfort caused to cows by a possible change in feeding bathing and milking times. However, some of my colleagues from farm areas outside those of lower New York City have tipped me off that cows work on a 24-hour schedule which is unaffected by radio or television shows. Daylight saving time merely cheats the fatigued worker, the tired mother and housewife, the children and the tired businessmen. Let us leave daylight saving time in the limbo where it belongs. When the time comes for son-to-son work on any farm, the farmer, his hired hands, and any stray traveling salesman start at sunrise and quit at sunset. And it makes no difference to them whether the clock says sunrise is at 3, 4, or 5 a.m. Therefore, Mr. Chairman, I hope the committee will report and the Congress will enact into law the permanent authority bill. The last count of cows in Washington was 76. There are many more farmers in Washington, one of them being Senator Harry Flood Byrd of Virginia, who is as proud of his Virginia apples 
as he is of his 18-year record in the Senate. This week, economy-minded Senator Byrd was boomed by Republican Senator Carl Munt as a coalition, Republican Southern Bloc, presidential candidate for 1952. And Senator Byrd made one of his few microphone appearances for us, saying that President Truman's budget could be pruned like an apple tree. President sent a budget to Congress that was $16.5 billion out of balance. And in the same breath, he said, we must have a balanced budget to curb inflation. To balance the budget, the president proposed that we should increase taxes by $16.5 billion each year. This would be in addition to the $8 billion in new, re- new taxes we have already given him since September. Together, these would total $25 billion in new taxes. And that would be an increase of 60% over the taxes we paid last year. This is something to think about as we fill out our tax returns between now and March the 15th. The president was having his troubles. Most foes of the budget said there were too many of the Fair Deal's welfare state projects in it, and the debate would last long and crowd the congressional record. The president said it was a tight budget, and he dared Congress to cut it. This week, the Secretary of State of Connecticut, Alice Leopold, speaking in Baltimore, Maryland, told a Goucher College audience that canasta, cocktails, and cynics are threatening America. Our government is controlled by politics... And politics is controlled by our people. If any evils exist in either, the blame rests on the doorsteps of the armchair citizens, who, either because of complacency or laziness, refrain from taking part in politics and excuse themselves by criticizing the results. Canasta, cocktails, and cynicism have become the false trademarks of too many people of our generation. The Western world watched Italy this week. Something was happening in Italy's Communist Party. A number of party leaders in the North had come to the conclusion that they preferred Italy over Moscow. Each day brought a new list of names of party members who had had enough. There was talk of a new Titoist movement. The Communist Party in Italy is in serious trouble, but its power to create trouble is still great. Our Secretary of State welcomed the split. And that news was known all over Italy. At the same time, Mr. Acheson issued a pretty solemn warning aimed at the countries bordering Yugoslavia, the Bulgars, Romanians, and Hungarians. He implied that if they move against Tito, it will probably mean war. But the question arises, how many of those people heard or read that warning? They are isolated from world news. Their press and radio speak with one communist-controlled voice. Our principal way of getting information to these people and to the Russians is through shortwave radio, the voice of America. It can hurdle frontiers. A moment after Mr. Atchison made his statement about Yugoslavia, a Voice of America reporter telephoned the story to the Voice headquarters here in New York. Then... I am John Knapp, a news editor for the Voice of America. This story came into our New York office on the Voice's direct wire from Washington. It had been covered there personally by a Voice of America correspondent. I turned the story over to Hal Corlander, who specializes in State Department matters. I am Hal Corlander, a Voice of America news writer. I took over the Atchison story, collected the various bulletins that began to come in rapidly, and wrote the basic script. It was used for our English broadcasts and in 27 other languages. I am Vladimir Nelson, a Russian language translator. The Atchison story was turned over to the Russian desk because it obviously had a special interest for the people of Russia. I translated it into Russian. 
I am Alexander Nazarov, editor of the Russian desk of The Voice of America. I received the Russian translation of the Atchison story and read it carefully, not only for accuracy of language and idiom, but also to make sure that it was the best presentation of the story possible. I am Tatiana Shalyapin, Russian language news broadcaster. The Atchison story in Russian was finally handed to me, and it was one of the principal items of news this evening when we opened the circuit and began our regular broadcasting to the Soviet Union. Washington. На пресс-конференции в среду государственный секретарь Ачесон указал представителям Radio voice that speaks round the clock in 28 different languages to most of the world. This is the voice of America. The running of any broadcasting network is an extremely difficult job. The Voice of America broadcasts to France, Belgium, Italy, Holland, Korea, Japan, and many other of our allies. But the big job is to reach the Iron Curtain countries. And there, listening to the voice is extremely difficult. First... There are only a few sets capable of picking up the short wave. Second, it's against the law. For that reason, the voice has ceased using the Yankee Doodle theme. It's an easily identifiable theme, which could seep out through the neighborhood and indicate a voice listener. But the biggest obstacle the voice has to combat is Soviet jamming. Because they know they cannot keep people from listening, they have set up more than 1,000 jamming transmitters to shroud our voice with static. For example, here is a voice program telling the story of Jackie Robinson to counteract Russian propaganda about anti-Negro feeling in the United States. Listen to them jam us. The story of Jackie Robinson, Negro star of the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team. The Russians spend three times more money on jamming than we do on broadcasting. In spite of this, we are getting through. During 1950, The Voice received more than a quarter of a million letters, most of them from free countries, but many from courageous people behind the curtain. They like our programs. In some countries, it is the only good radio entertainment available to them, and we are transmitting the best there is in America. You can't just send them propaganda and news any more than our radio can use only commercials. You've got to entertain with people like singer Joe Stafford. This is Joe Stafford greeting you from Hollywood. Every day's mail brings me added evidence of the great interest young people all over the world have in the United States. Interest in our cultural life, in our history, and in our everyday activities. I want to urge you to keep it up. Keep on writing. And now, young friends, this is Joe Stafford saying au revoir, hasta la vista, auf Wiedersehen, arrivederci, and so long from Hollywood. And in an effort to attract the Soviet listener by entertainment, the voice is also sending sports. From the Goshen track, the famous Hamiltonian race for trotters in Russian. We are on the beginning of the Goshen 
где мы сейчас ожидаем розыгрыша главного приза бегового сезона в Соединенных Штатах Хамблтонин. The Voice's big job, of course, is truth. To get the true story of America's intentions to the peoples who are constantly being told we are warmongers, that Eisenhower and Marshall, and for that matter, almost all Americans are imperialists. Recently, when the Russians accused Ike of conquering Europe, The Voice sent this message back. This is the story of destination, peace. It is the story of a mission that took 21 days and covered 21,000 miles. Specifically, it is the story of the man whose voice you are about to hear, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Greetings to all our neighbors in the Atlantic community, to Europe and the British Isles. I returned to Europe as a military commander, but with no miraculous plan, no display of military force. The direct competition to the voice, of course, is the Moscow radio. Just the other day, we monitored the Soviet radio and heard them say this about American movies. A major role in the fight for peace is played by Soviet motion pictures. Our movie audiences never hear any propaganda of militarism, reaction, and war. From our screen comes summons to peace. There is no propaganda in Russian films. Only Hollywood does this. We asked the Voice of America what they do to answer these ridiculous charges. We asked them specifically what they did several weeks ago when the Russians showed Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds goes to town, two good U.S. films made with Jimmy Stewart and Gary Cooper, but the Russians showed only half the films, ending them before the climax, when the villains had Mr. Cooper and Mr. Stewart in rather awkward, wholly un-American messes. The voice said they asked Gary Cooper, well-known behind the Iron Curtain and once very popular there, to explain the distortion. This is Gary Cooper of Hollywood. I am happy to hear that one of my motion pictures, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, has been playing before large audiences in Moscow. I hope that the people in the Soviet Union who have seen the film get a lot of pleasure out of it. But I think it's too bad that the people of Moscow are not seeing the complete American version of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. So, to the people in the Soviet Union, just remember that Mr. Deeds really wins his fight. And that goes for everything he stood for, too. The basic task of the Voice of America is to sell the American people and democracy to the world. But our counterpunching against an enemy which is constantly on the offensive keeps the Voice busy just answering Moscow. Last year, when the Communist blamed a potato blight on the United States, saying that we had used potato bugs to kill the crops, the Voice answered this ridiculous lie with this broadcast. In our imaginative eye, we take you now to East Germany, to a small village, where one of these malefactors, a potato bug, has been arrested. Plucked from the vine, she has been dragged into court and stands now before the Moscow Commissar in charge of potato bugs. You are an enemy of the people. This is nothing new. We've always been the farmer's enemy. We like potatoes. We care nothing for your likes and dislikes. We are here to investigate. You are a spy, a saboteur. You parade as an ordinary potato bug, but we know better. You are a Colorado beetle, and Colorado is a state in the capitalistic United States. I have relatives, yes, all over the world. In Colorado, we eat Colorado potatoes. In England, English potatoes. In Russia, I beg your pardon, the glorious Soviet Union, we eat Soviet potatoes. I've had news from distant cousins there. They're not eating too well. Not enough potatoes. And because we know that the Russian people and the other people behind the Iron Curtain do not hear the truth on the Soviet's filibusters at the United Nations, the voice sent this sequence on the red veto back to the Russians. 
In five short years, the Russian yet has become a byword. On the resolution that the United Nations be granted authority to inspect atomic energy plants. Yet. On the resolution for the regulation and reduction of armaments and armed forces. Yet. On the resolution to hear evidence and testimony in regard to the coup in Czechoslovakia. Yet. On the resolution to take steps for the solution of the Berlin crisis. Yet. On the resolution that attacks on the Greek border be considered a direct threat to the peace. Yet. On the resolution that Austria be admitted into the United Nations. Yet. That the Republic of Korea be admitted. Yet. Portugal. Yet. Italy. Yet. Finland. Yet. Ceylon. Yet. Transjordan. Yet. 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 Our programs to Russia contain about 70% pro-American propaganda, 30% anti-Soviet. And of course the big question, and the only important question is, are we getting through? In Russia there are 10 million radio sets, but more than 6 million of them are merely loudspeaker outlets, which can pick up only the Moscow radio. How many of the other 4 million are capable of picking up the voice, we just don't know. But our propaganda is getting through. For example, several years ago the Russians were about to revaluate the ruble... They kept this a secret to stop a buying spree. The voice went on the air, hour after hour, telling the Russians about this revaluation. Alex Kendrick, the last CBS correspondent in Moscow, reports the reaction. For a long time, the voice of America was ignored by the Russians. They would listen to it, all right, but their reaction was one of ridicule. Then we first really got under their skin in December 47, and they stopped joking. That was when the Russians were going to revalue the ruble. Word leaked out in advance and touched off a wave of panic buying in Moscow. Not a single correspondent was able to get a single word about the panic past the censor. But the voice got the story and beamed it right back at Moscow, telling the people things which they knew to be true from first-hand participation, but which their government kept from them. It was right after that the Russians began to attack the voice and to start the tremendous jamming they're still doing. How many are listening in the other Iron Curtain countries? We asked two recent escapees from Czechoslovakia and Hungary to tell us if and how the voice programs were being heard in those countries. We are withholding their names for obvious reasons. First, from Czechoslovakia. I would say that half of the population listens to Voice of America because it is uh, now the only source of straight news and also what is, uh, I think, even more important of spiritual and intellectual reinforcement. And a man from Hungary. We have reason to think we have more listeners in Hungary than any other place. The Russians spend more hours counterattacking our Hungarian broadcasts than all others. At the moment, there are no newspapers except communist newspapers, no radio stations except uh, the local one, which is naturally um, uh, directed from uh, Moscow, so the people listen to the voice and believe in what the voice has to say. It, it's gospel truth to them. We are getting behind the Iron Curtain, and the voice is developing techniques to combat jamming all the time. But the entire voice program is only a start. It will spend less than $60 million this year, asks for twice as much next year, about the cost of a battleship. The broadcasts of the voice are constantly improving, but the payoff in this war of the killer cycles is broadcast channels. By international law, less than 6% of all the channels are used for this purpose. And the Russians have more than three times the channels we do, and the British twice as many. As in time of war, we put a priority on materials of war, steel, oil, air travel. It may be necessary for the government to put a priority on this vital weapon of the Cold War, the air lanes. Without them, the best propaganda in the world is like a ship without water to sail on. 
The voice operates as part of the State Department, has many problems, has numerous friends and numerous critics. Representative Judd of Minnesota says this about the Voice of America. Recently, I talked to a man who just gotten out from behind the Iron Curtain. He said, your voice, I listen to it every once in a while. It has what I would call a strength-telling program. He said, but you don't need to tell us that America's strong. We all know that. What we want to know is whether you're right or not, whether, you're de- whether your position is sound, whether we can depend on you or not. What you ought to have, he said, is not a strength-telling program, but a truth-telling program. Now, I think that's, uh, uh, that's uh, where our weakness comes. We tell them how many television sets we have and how many automobiles and all the rest of those material gains, and we don't tell them what's the reason. The fact is that the communists are doing a better job selling their lies than we are telling the truth. We asked our good friend H.V. Kaltenborn what he would do to improve the voice this nation needs so badly. I asked myself, why could not the Voice of America broadcast anti-communist editorials on news events or become the aggressive, vigorous champion of those who suffer under communism? The answer I gave myself is that State Department control of the voice is too careful, too conservative, too slow-moving. Until the voice speaks loudly and fearlessly as an independent editorial agent, it will be the voice with a mumble described last month in Harper's Magazine. And Senator William Benton of Connecticut, who once ran the voice, and who last week offered the suggestion that perhaps it should be set up as an independent organization, said this for us yesterday. My hope is to introduce a resolution on Monday calling for a Senate investigation of the Voice of America and all kindred activities. I want to give the State Department a chance to show what remarkable progress has been made under the direction of Assistant Secretary Barrett and what fine work is being done by the worldwide organization which has been developed by him within the State Department. And I want to give the Senate a chance to learn what more is needed in order still further to accelerate this progress. For I think it's fair to say that, great though the progress may have been, it isn't up to the progress we are making today in the field of military policy or in the field of economic policy. The man who runs the Voice of America is Edward Barrett, former editor of Newsweek magazine, and as Undersecretary of State in charge of the Voice, one of the key men in the Cold War, Mr. Barrett. We of the free world are by no means losing the so-called battle for men's minds. We're well on our way toward winning it. In many areas of the world, a big lie is already losing its effectiveness in the face of the truth offensive, which is being conducted in multiple ways, some direct and some extremely subtle. We must be careful, of course, to avoid any blatant, flamboyant show of American propaganda, because that sort of thing could do more harm than good. We have given you a brief example of how the Voice of America operates, some of its difficulties. It is our voice, speaking in the name of all of us. We in this country are masters of the advertising arts when it comes to selling goods. But we have paid less attention to the selling of ideas in the international marketplace. In vast areas of the world, people are searching about for new allegiances. In these areas, we are competing with the communists for that allegiance. Our voice should be loud, clear, and listenable. In vast areas of the world, it isn't any of those things. Part of our trouble is technical, matters of frequencies, distance, and the location of transmitters. 
Part of it is that we aren't spending enough money. Certainly, we need more men and women of ability in the government service, and they're hard to get. It may be that the voice of America should not be exclusively in the hands of the State Department. Investigation can determine that. We're inclined to think that the part of wisdom would be to think anew about our whole policy and program of psychological warfare and information. We have a National Security Council, a Joint Chiefs of Staff. It is their business to provide for the defense of the nation if war comes. But what if it doesn't? What if this desperate battle for allegiances goes on for year after year? Should we not have a Joint Chiefs for the direction of this crucial contest, which may do much to determine whether there is a war? It would not be fanciful to suggest that a new cabinet member should be responsible for this area of activity alone. This isn't just broadcasting that's involved. It's the sum total of what we can do to present our case to those who thirst for truth. The sum of what we can do to create doubt and suspicion in the minds of those who have accepted totalitarian doctrine. It is our effort to create confusion in the ranks of our enemies and confidence in our allies and amongst the waverers. We require more boldness and imagination. This isn't a job just for diplomats or just for broadcaster, newspaper, or advertising men. It requires combinations of the qualities that make this country what it is. It demands people who are willing to act as pirates in the field of ideas. For we are out to capture, or rather to liberate, men's minds. If we can't do it, we must face the prospect of inevitable collision with all its consequences. It seems clear that our efforts in this area are presently wholly inadequate. You have just heard Program 10 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Irving Gitlin, Edmund Scott, John Aaron, Jesse Zosmer, and Joseph Werschberg. Portions of the program originated at WTOP Washington, WRVA Richmond, Virginia, WBBM Chicago, WEEI Boston, KRLD Dallas, KMBC Kansas City, WAGA Atlanta, KNX Los Angeles, KCBS San Francisco, and WDRC Hartford. The Voice of America sequence was prepared with the assistance of CBS correspondent Alexander Kendrick. The Robinson sequence was done through the cooperation of Chuck Wiley and the Illinois State Boxing Commission. Russ Hodges was the blow-by-blow announcer. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of the CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 Eastern Standard Time. Olin Tai speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> <laughs>